I just thought it was only Presbyterians that made the late people sit up front. Like I just realized there was a Baptist thing too. Um, glad that you're all here. Thank you for coming out this morning. Um, um, it is really, really nice to be here. Um, um, I'm going to start with a quote that I use every single time because it is a definition of leadership. So um, that bio is just a little bit out of date. It's okay. I'm, I, I like all of those things. But um, today what I do is I actually run the Church Leadership Institute at Fuller Seminary. Um, after seven years on senior administration, I transitioned to a center where we could study church change. That's what we do every day. We, every day we work on how do you faithfully navigate change. And I run a company called A.E. Sloan Leadership that basically does that with uh, churches and nonprofits and universities and denominations. And so every single day I get up and I get to work with somebody who is trying to bring leadership in a disturbing, disruptive, transitioning moment. And my favorite definition of leadership comes from these two guys at Harvard, Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky. Leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. And for most of us, this absolutely sums up the challenge of leadership. We, got, we didn't get into leadership to disappoint anybody, right? We took on the job usually because someone said, you'd be great at this. We think you'd be terrific. We, we believe in you. You might have been voted in or appointed in. And you got there and you realized all of a sudden leadership is really different than I thought it was. And the most difficult part that everybody um, focuses on here is the word disappointed. Um, What could be disappointing? There's a God we love. There are people we love. We're going to help the people we love meet the God we love. We're going to do that by planting or building a church they will love. What could possibly be disappointing about that? Until you realize that in order to reach the people we love who do not know the God we love, we've got to mess with a church that people have often loved, and they loved it exactly the way it was. And so because of that, even when you're doing church planting, those of you who have done church planting know this, people come and join the church plant. Oh, this will be great. We're going to do something new. And then the next thing you know is they're mad that you've set out a sanctuary that didn't have like a center aisle because where's my daughter going to walk down the aisle when I want to have her her married? Where's the organ and the choir and the handbell? Aren't we going to have handbells in our church plant? You start recognizing how often you, even when you're starting something new, people keep us stuck in old models, and that we're always messing with people. Uh, I teach at Fuller, and I teach now entirely in the Doctor of Ministry program in leading change and leadership. And one time in a faculty meeting, one of our uh, professors who was in charge of Old Testament said, I'm not sure why we even teach leadership at the seminary. I mean, in the Bible, there's basically one theology of leadership, and it basically goes like this. When God is leading, things are okay. When humans start leading, things go bad. See Saul, right? And so it's hard sometimes to come up with a good biblical theology or an understanding of leadership. So let me tell you how I do it, because it sets the tone for what we're going to talk about today. The best way for me to understand leadership isn't by trying to go through every passage and say, oh, is this a good or bad example of biblical leadership? It's hard to do that. What you can do, however, is compare leadership to another biblical category that is all over the scriptures, and that's the category of management. In the scriptures, it's called stewardship. And really good stewards are people who are really good, in the words of my colleague Scott Cormode, taking care of the things entrusted to your care. If you take care of the things entrusted to your care and you hand them over to other people, you actually get then praised for being a good steward, a faithful steward. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? 
We take care of the things entrusted to our care. We hand them over to other people who take care of them also, right? That's what stewardship is all about. Uh, Paul even describes that as the work of the gospel, right? The things that you have learned from me, you entrust to other faithful people who will also entrust them to others. It's good work. What it means is what I realize now after, is that when I was a senior pastor for 17 years and I was looking for a youth director every three years or so, I wasn't looking for a youth leader. I was looking for a youth manager. You take 10 kids to camp, you got to bring 10 kids home. 90% is not an A. And it becomes really important to recognize that when your focus is upon the things that have been entrusted to your care, people are appreciative. They're, they're grateful for it. You took good care of our building. You took care of our budget. You took care of our people. You took care of me. Leadership is where you've got to take people where they not only say they need, want to go, but where they need to go and where they resist going. Leadership is where you have to step into an environment where people have to become different than they were when they began the journey. So the good manager says that to get from the Red Sea to the Promised Land takes about six weeks of good navigating. The leader understands that it takes 40 years to get the people ready to go into the, to the Promised Land. And the resistance along the way is the most difficult part. In 2015, I published this book called Canoeing the Mountains, which is all about leadership in a changing world, and it lays out many of these concepts. And I was invited then to speak in lots of different places. I was speaking about, I was traveling about 100,000 miles a year, traveling in different places, talking about this kind of leadership. And I remember this experience where I was in a southern state with a group of United Methodists and a district superintendent heard me do two days of training. And after two days of training, he walked up to me and he basically said, that was great. Thanks so much. <sighs> okay, not so great, right? He says, can we get your slides? Yes, you can get my slides, which by the way, I'll give you a chance to get all the slides. You know, I don't know if we have anybody who can do this. I said, well, what do you mean? I mean, what you just described is really hard. That kind of leadership is really difficult. Disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. None of us were made for that. We didn't get into ministry as people who are gonna disappoint anybody. This is hard. It is hard. And our own people can be really disappointing too. In the middle of COVID, a pastor of an 8,000 member multi-site church in the South asked if he could have a consultation with me. He said, when I watched the way my people treated each other on Facebook, during COVID. I wondered if I'd ruined and wasted 31 years of my life. They were vile to each other. We, the transformation of our people is a profoundly difficult journey. And what he was basically saying to me was the kind of leadership you're talking about, leadership that doesn't just take care of what's been entrusted to our care and hand it over to other trustful, trustworthy people, but actually requires transformation is a profoundly different kind of leadership. Let's be clear about this. There is no transformation without trust. If people don't trust you, they will not let you transform them. And there is no congregation that is gonna go through good, healthy, biblical transformation unless you are trustworthy. There is absolutely no transformation without trust. But trust is not transformation. It doesn't matter how well people trust you as a leader, 
They literally have to let you take them through a process where they're going to have to let go of many of the things that they hold dear in order to keep going. And it could take a long time with a lot of resistance along the way. Ed Friedman was a Jewish rabbi who did a bunch of work in the 1980s and 90s around congregational vitality and change. He was a, a Jewish rabbi who spent 40 years running a, a large synagogue. He also studied what's called Bowenian family systems therapy. So for those of you who are in, in, trained in psychology, uh, what Bowenian family systems therapy says is that the best way to have a healthy humans grow up in your family is to be a healthy family. And he believed that the best way for people to grow up into healthy spiritual people is to have healthy congregations. And he also spent a lot of time working in in Washington, D.C., consulting with the government about healthy governments. He, He saw dysfunction at every level. When he was asked why leaders tend to burn out or check out or sometimes need resilience, he put it this way. He said, they become so focused on the aches and pains in the system that they had been thrown off course by the complaints. They'd stopped supplying vision or had burned out fighting the resistance. They had ceased to be the strength in the system. In short, they had forgotten to lead. This is what happens to many of us when we get into the middle of trying to lead change, to bring transformation, to see the gospel take root in our new church or in our revived multiplying church. It's that when the complaints come, when the resistance comes, the most soul-sucking thing is not the challenges of the world out there. It's the resistance of our own people when you call them to meet the challenges of the world out there. That the same people who say to you, please, let's plant a new church, let's start a new ministry, let's reach a new people, let's find a way to move the gospel into places where it hasn't been, those same people who cheer you on one day are resisting you the next. And that disappointment of your own people becomes so profoundly difficult. As one of the clients that I coach said, I don't worry about whether I can learn to lead change, I worry about whether I can survive it. So we're going to talk today about resilience and what resilience means. Uh, This is an amazing time to be studying the topic of resilience. There are lots of books and lots of resources and lots of good things. All of them I would commend to you. I think there's been a tremendously good amount of research and writing about resilience. I'm going to give you a a, a definition of resilience you're probably not familiar with because it comes from another part of the world. It comes from, um, from... from national development circles. These are the kinds of people who work with nations when they need to worry about resilience. And it basically goes like this. It's from a guy named Andrew Zoli. He asked the question, how do nations like Rwanda recover from genocide? Giant acts of resilience. He put it this way, resilience is the capacity to maintain core purpose and integrity in the face of dramatically changed circumstances. Maintain core purpose and integrity. Now, if you spend more than 10 minutes with me, you're going to know that maintain is not a verb that gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm not a guy who likes to maintain anything. I stepped out of senior administration at the school once we had finally gotten our strategic plan passed, and I knew that somebody needed to administrate it. That's not me. But maintaining core purpose, our mission, maintaining integrity, our values, that's worth a lot. And what Andrew Zoli's pointing out is that in times of deep disruption, what is at stake here isn't just our own personal self-care, it's that we can lose our mission, we can lose our purpose, 
We can, we can lose our integrity. We can compromise our values. And so resilience is more as important as it is than our own self-care, or even our own personal survival. Resilience is where we develop the capacity to keep the mission and vision that God has given us in front of us, that we are stewards of something bigger than us that is often at stake at threats in those moments. So let me give you an example of how to think about these things. Um, I, t- I quoted Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky earlier today, that disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. In 2009, they wrote an article for Harvard Business Review called Leadership in a Permanent Crisis. The premise was this. It's 2009, and we've already had two major crises in one decade. We've had 9-11, and we've had the 2008 economic crisis. Could you imagine if you had to bring leadership in a world that's going to have two major crises every decade? They had no idea 2020 was coming, did they? I mean, the way to think about it is you all have been leading through a time that is unprecedented, especially in the church world. We've, you've been leading in a time that has had, uh, been like 1918, 1929, and 1968 all at the same time. We had a health crisis that led to an economic crisis that continues to linger, that has led to a political crisis because it has also led to the unveiling and the realization of social justice crisis when you realize how unevenly people have experienced these different, these different crises. And it has led to a kind of division politically that has taken place not just in our political parties, but for many of us right in our pews. And we've had to find a way to navigate through it. I want you to be clear, I don't think it's the hardest time to have ever been a pastor. I think trying to be a pastor during the Black Plague when 25% of the human race died would have been harder. And I think it would be harder to be a pastor in Ukraine today than in Houston, though I think the weather's worse in Houston. But it could be the most complicated. There's not a group of people that you can look at and say, so what'd you do when you went through that? There's no senior pastor that you can look at and say, what are the best practices that helped you when you went through it? Nobody's been through an experience like this. We are having to lead into what is clearly an unprecedented, uncharted territory. Well, what Heifetz and Linsky did in their their article in 2009 is they gave us a model for how to lead through crisis. And they talked, and I call this, how not to waste a crisis. And they basically put it this way. In every crisis, there are two phases. The first phase is the acute phase. The acute phase is when everybody knows it's a crisis, right? Hurricanes, everybody's pulling out their boats, right? Everybody knows you gotta get those folks out. It's like, it's a crisis. It's like when you guys had the, the big freeze that, that just, just made Texas shut down a couple of years ago. I mean, I know people from Austin and Dallas who just couldn't get on the road for days because they were skidding all over the place. We know what to do with the crisis, right? You go to Costco, you stock up on water and toilet paper, and you hunker down. And during the acute phase, everybody comes together. There's some energy, right? There's some energy around it. On... Uh, March 13, 2020, Friday the 13th, I was flying from South Dakota working with a group of church planters back to Los Angeles. I went through the Denver airport and United Airlines handed me a Clorox wipe. Not the little branded, perfectly sealed ones they give you today. I mean, someone went to Costco and pulled out a bunch of wipes and were handing them out on the plane. And they were saying stuff like, you know, because of this coronavirus, could you all help us wipe down the plane so we can keep it safe? 
I'm thinking, you're United Airlines. You keep people safe at 30,000 feet. You need my help, we're in big trouble. But by the time we landed, all, everything at Fuller Seminary had shut down. We were all online, we all went home. I had 65 staff around the country, all began to work remotely. I didn't go back to my office, I didn't get into an Uber, I didn't go on a plane for 18 months. We knew what to do, we came together and we survived the crisis. What happens, the way Heifetz and Linsky talk about it, is it's a little bit like if you've ever ended up in the emergency room. If you go to the emergency room, everybody knows that if this is an emergency, we gotta take it seriously. So people come together, the whole staff is there, they kick everybody out, they're paying attention to you. Then all of a sudden, if it's clear that the emergency's over, at least the acute phase is over, you watch what happens, everybody kind of calms down. They start checking their phones, they look in their emails, they're taking notes, they're asking you questions, you think they're being polite, they're just checking your faculties to make sure you can answer questions. And what you're thinking at this moment, being the patient wheeled in there in the emergency is, where do I get back my pants? How can I get back my phone? How can I get back to normal? Because in a time of crisis, what people experience is complete disorientation. Everything feels unfamiliar. Remember this, next time you're working with a group of people and you suggest a new idea or ask them to take on something unfamiliar, the root word for the word familiar and family are the same root word. So what happens to people at that moment when they are in an unfamiliar experience is they feel not just disoriented, they feel unfamilied. They feel abandoned. And everything about them wants to just go back to whatever was familiar. Run home to mama. Go back to what we know. And for those of us who were sitting in more traditional churches, you knew this is what happened during COVID. People kept looking at you going, when can we get back to normal? When can we go back to what we used to do? And I used to think to myself, back to what? Back to the church that's been losing millennials at a million people a year for the last 20 years? Back to the church that, has, that literally created this crisis in our pews because the way we didn't disciple people? Back to what? But what we wanted to do is go back to the familiar and it's a great temptation and everybody who goes through the acute phase wants to be there. What the good leader understands is there's a second phase. This second phase is what they call the adaptive phase. The phase where all of a sudden you get the opportunity to look at the underlying issues that were there all along, that now became revealed in this moment, that you have the opportunity to look at that you might have been neglecting, that it gives us the opportunity to confront the issues that have been there all along that you haven't been able to look at or look at before. It gives you, as they say, the opportunity to hit the organizational reset button. Okay, so just do a little mental exercise with me. Think back to COVID or any crisis that you were facing, anything that your church has had to go through, anything you've had to watch a people go through, and ask this question, what was revealed during the crisis? What was there all along? I mean, some good things come out without question, right? But what about the deeper issues that were there all along that you haven't had the will to confront that became really apparent during that crisis? So my father's 81 years old. And right before COVID hit, we looked at him and said, Dad, you've got almost all those underlying conditions that makes COVID really, really dangerous. He had neuropathy and heart disease and diabetes and obesity. 
And we said, Dad, the thing you've got to do is keep yourself safe. And he did. He kept himself safe. Matter of fact, my father ended up having a heart valve transplant during COVID. COVID probably saved his life because he was home during COVID. My stepmom could notice that he wasn't breathing and could get him medical attention. My stubborn old dad from Alaska, if he'd have been doing his own life, he'd have been out walking the streets and probably fallen over dead. But because he was home, it saved his life. We could see these things, right? This heart problem. Now, let's be clear. COVID didn't cause my dad's heart problem. He's been working on that bad heart for 40 years. But it was there and it was revealed. So in your own church center, in your organization, and wherever you find yourself, what were some of those underlying conditions? Now, during COVID, when I couldn't travel, I ended up doing webinars. And what I could do during webinars is I could ask people to type in these answers. Just like right here, boom, you could type them in. And what I found were these themes that showed up over and over again. Big themes, themes that we noticed. Stuff like um, a lack of deep discipleship for a persevering church. We were not as Christian as we thought we were. Do you realize that most scholars are now beginning to ask the question about whether this is the first pandemic or plague or health crisis in the history of the church where the church didn't grow? For the first 300 years of church history, every time Rome had a plague, the church grew. For the first 300 years, every time there was a crisis in the culture, the church grew. People came to church people because they acted different than the people in the culture. During this crisis, we accelerated our decline. I was speaking with Tom Rayner at an event, and he literally said that they've been tracking the decline of Christianity in the West for years. And he said that where we thought the church in America would be in 2027, we hit in 2022. COVID took five years. Lack of deep discipleship, a lack of community. I don't know about your tradition. In mine, we take vows literally as member, covenant members of the body of Christ. We baptize our children and we say we are going to raise them together in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is a covenanted commitment to join a church. And this lack of community, this community that we thought would hold us together was split along the same lines that has split our culture you know this, most of us are divided more by the newscast we listen to than the Bible we read. And that lack of community shattered in our midst. The lack of cross-generational engagement. Everything happening in the life of the church is accelerated by those under 45. More people under 45 are leaving the church faster than those who are older. More people under 45 are talking about the dis there's disappointment in the church. The gap in generations grew in our midst. The lack of leadership capacity. When I started traveling again, I realized that COVID hit people differently in different places. There were places in this country, I don't know if this is one of them or not, where literally the law said you could gather, you can gather, you just have to gather safely and you have to gather with like 12 people or less. And our church members were throwing up their arms. What can you possibly do with 12 people for the gospel? For crying out loud. The issue wasn't the 12 people. The issue is we didn't have enough leaders to break up our church into 12 people, right? You know the 80-20 principle? 20% 20 of the people do 80% of the work? Every pastor I know would take that deal. 
If I could get 20% of the people to do 80% of the work, come in. I'll take that church. That sounds awesome. Because my church is 199 and not the way Jesus meant it. Right? And the lack of prophetic wisdom for addressing the challenges of social injustice. Don't you wish? Don't you wish? Imagine a world when the next time we have a crisis of social injustice, the government says, let's go talk to people in the church. They have a Bible that has been dealing with and talking about injustice for 5,000 years. They train up their people to know about justice. It's at the center of who they are. Could you imagine a day when the church would become the resource for the world for dealing with social injustice? And yet every single division in the world came back to the church. Now, these are huge issues, right? And they didn't, weren't happened by COVID. They didn't happen because we had an infection or had to wear a mask or whatever it was, it was. They were going on long before. It's just that during the crisis, it came to the surface. And what you begin to realize is in your own context, you have some of these own things, these deeper underlying issues, and they're huge. And they can feel overwhelming. And they're difficult to hold on to. What Edwin Friedman said was this. He said, when any relationship system is imaginatively gridlocked, you know what happens when you start thinking about these big issues? When you start trying to take on these giant challenges? When you say our church is here in the world to take on the pain of this community, that we believe that God put us here as a witness and we get overwhelmed when any relationship system is imaginatively gridlocked. I love that phrase. Remember, first of all, we're a relationship system. We function, whether we like it or not, unconsciously or consciously, like a family more than an institution, a movement, or an organization. We function almost unconsciously that way. And when we get to the place where we get overwhelmed, our brains seize up and we get imaginative gridlock. It's like when you gather a group of people together with a whiteboard and say, let's think outside the box. And you realize that for six hours, you've just been arguing over the definition of box. If you haven't been in a meeting that is imaginatively gridlocked, let me invite you to a faculty meeting. Because the more people have the higher their education, the more their experience, the more their esteem, the more their privilege, the more locked they get into their worldviews. And they start competing with each other. When any relationship system is imaginatively gridlocked, it cannot get free simply through more thinking about the problem. Conceptually stuck systems cannot be unstuck simply by trying harder. What I want to say to you if you came here today talking about resilience and you're tired is the answer is not to try to outwork these challenges. That's like paddling really hard in a canoe where there isn't any water. You're going to burn out your rotator cuff and you're not going to go anywhere. It's not about going harder. It's about training differently. And this different way of training, this different kind of leadership that's needed in an uncharted world is something that we haven't been trained in. For a fundamental reorientation to occur, that spirit of adventure, this is our day, this is our moment, this is our challenge, this is ours. This is ours that calls our name. A spirit of adventure which optimizes serendipity, that enables new perceptions beyond the control of our thinking processes must happen first. You will not be the expert who can find your way through with your programs and your bag of tricks. You're gonna to have to have new learning 
and you're gonna have to think about it in a totally different way. What Friedman put it was this way, a spirit of adventure requires learning and it results in loss. One of the hardest parts about taking people through the uncharted territory is you've gotta actually tell them to lay things down, to let things go. That loss is at the center of the experience. We wanna go back to the glory days and they don't exist. We wanna grab, bring everybody back together again and half the people are gone. We wanna use the programs we've always used, the strategies we've always had, the things that worked for a previous generation. You know what it's like, you've been in those meetings. You've come up with a new idea and somebody looks at you and says, don't you think we could just do this with a better curriculum? You know the experience of what it's like when people are holding on to the things of the past. And the the thing I want you to understand is that the big challenge that you have for taking people innovatively into the future is not coming up with a brand new plan. It's actually navigating the loss of the people who had the old plan. The principles of what's called adaptive leadership start with this one. People don't resist change, they resist loss. Now, as people who are trained in soul care, you should find a bit of hope here. You know what to do with loss. If right this moment your phone was to go off and you were, and you were to hear that there was a tragic car accident of people in your congregation and you needed to get up and go to the hospital, you would know what to do. You've been trained in it. I work at a seminary. Everybody who comes to a seminary, somebody said to them, you're the best Christian I know. You should go pro. And they come to the seminary, and we make them into people who get a master of divinity. Does that sound like a superhero or what? (laughs) And we train them what to do in those moments. And you and I both know in ways that almost nobody in the church understands that those crises we're good at. This is why they don't know the little secret that we would rather be leading a funeral than a wedding. Because at the funeral, people are listening to the deepest things of our voice. And at a wedding, they're just hoping that we don't mess up the picture. Right? We understand what to do with loss. We've been trained how to deal with loss. We've been trained how to take people through loss individually. Nobody taught us how to take a community through loss intentionally. Where you let things go. Where you put things aside where you understand that what got you here won't take you there. And when you tell them that you have to take them into the future, they resist you. And they resist you with sabotage. I told you all of that to tell you this. What we found in all the research, in all the conversations, in almost everything about what makes it hard to be in ministry today is the great challenge of ministry is sabotage. It's not the challenge of the world out there. It's the resistance and sabotage of your own people when you call them to the mission of the world out there. Ed Friedman says, if you're a leader, expect sabotage. He says, um, the most important aspect of leadership, here's the title, right? The capacity of a leader to be prepared for, to be aware of, and to learn how to skillfully deal with sabotage may be the most important aspect of leadership. Most important aspect of leadership, which is why you all had like a year on sabotage in seminary, right? (laughs) 
I work at a seminary. We never mentioned sabotage in our curriculum until some of us began to say, this is so critical. It's literally, he says, the key to the kingdom, the most important aspect of sabotage. So this is what I want you to understand briefly this morning, and then we'll talk more about how to deal with it this afternoon. Friedman puts it this way, the important thing to remember about the phenomena of sabotage is that it's a systemic part of leadership. It's part and parcel of the leadership process. Another way of putting this is that a leader can never assume success because he or she has brought about a change. It's only after having first brought about a change and then survived, first brought about a change, then subsequently endured the resultant sabotage that the leader can feel truly successful. Let me help you understand this. So I don't know if there's any Presbyterians in the room, but here's a little Presbyterian theology, just so you can take it home and impress people at parties. Um, This is the way Presbyterians believe renewal happens by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is gonna bring change, it happens this way. There's a small group of people who'd get a burden on their heart that we need to make a change. They are asked and given authority together to explore that prayerfully and with study and with scripture study. We're gonna call that group a committee. And that committee is going to get together and they're going to have long conversations and study things and bring in experts. And when they finally get an idea of how that change is going to come, they understand they can't bring that change. They got to bring that change to people who have authority. So they're going to bring it in a way that they can discern together. And they bring that in something called emotion. And then they, the committee brings emotion to a group of people who together are going to discern whether the Holy Spirit is in this. And they're going to use an ancient term of discernment. And they're going to use this thing called Robert's Rules of Order. And they're going to have a long discussion and conversation about whether this is a decision we want to make. And when we finally get to the place of where we feel like the Lord is speaking, we use an even more anxious way of doing it. We discern by taking a vote. And if you have a committee that brings a motion that goes to a group of people that is talked about with Robert's Rules of Order and has a duly called and properly installed vote, and you get one vote more than the majority, you get Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls at that moment. We have change. We have renewal. We move forward. Hallelujah. Amen. We're going to lunch. And Friedman would say, and then the sabotage kicks in. The most soul-sucking thing for those of us who thought we were going to be change leaders is we thought we got the change when we got the vote. They called us. They launched a new church. They called me to the position. They asked me to do this thing. We told them we wanted to put this money in this budget rather than this one. We voted. It happened. It's done. Yes, then sabotage happens. Sabotage is normal. It's natural. It's to be expected. Sabotage is not the bad things that evil people do. It's the human things that anxious people do. This is what humans do with change. It's what happens when you thrust people into something unfamiliar. When all of a sudden you put them in a place of deep disorientation, their anxiety will cause them to sabotage. They want to go back. Now, lest you think that this is just an experience that we have because we are you know, people of the 21st century who have figured out how to not be committed to the Bible, let me take you to just wrap up this session by taking you to a biblical example of sabotage. How about the greatest miracle that would happen in the scriptures until the resurrection? How about the Exodus? 
Y'all know the story. I don't have to tell you. You've all preached the story, right? But after the 10 plagues and after the 10 times that Pharaoh has the opportunity to let the people go, on that brutal night when the people of God gather together in their traveling clothes, when they put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost to protect them, when the angel of death came and struck down the firstborn in Egypt, Pharaoh finally says, let him go. 650,000 of them who have been previously enslaved for 400 years now start heading to the promised land. In Exodus 13, it says, God knows their fearful hearts. And because he knows that they're gonna run into their ancient foes, the Philistines, ancient foes, the Philistines, they've been enslaved for 400 years. They have 400 years of Philistine boogeyman stories they've been telling. They got 400 years of Philistine trauma and so God knows that they're not up for that task, so he sends them in a safer way, an easier path. That easier path takes them into the cul-de-sac that is the Red Sea. 650,000 of them staring at the Red Sea. Not a bit of, not a shred of biblical evidence that any of them are good swimmers. And at this moment, they look behind them and they see Pharaoh's chariots coming after them. Why? Because Pharaoh can do math. And Pharaoh figured out that if you have grand plans like pyramids and world domination, it's way easier to do it with enslaved people. And so you're, it throws the math off and it throws off the bottom line. And so he decides, I don't care what it costs us. Go get those people back. And here's the people of God. The Red Sea on one side, the chariots on the other side, they're caught in the middle. And the people of God do what the people of God always do. They look up and they blame the leader. <laughs> Exodus 14, 31. So the people believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That's not the verse. Exodus 14, 11. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We wish they would have believed in Moses, but they don't. What do they do at that moment? They blame Moses. You can just see them, right? Hey, I didn't say freedom. Did you say freedom? I didn't say freedom. I said more straw. I wanted straw. He says freedom. We wanted a better lunch. We wanted some time off to worship. That's all we wanted. Moses was the idea that said freedom. He's the one that amped this thing up. I mean, for crying out loud, thanks a lot, Mo. Good job. Now we're going to die. Thanks. Way to go, Mo. Moses says, look up, see what God will do, and God does. Parts the Red Sea, they go through on dry land, they get to the other side, oh my gosh. They see the chariots come into the water, they get scared, the waters come back, the waters flood over the chariots, the chariots and chariot drivers are dead on the beach. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. They've got a sea between them and Egypt, and Egypt's army is destroyed, they are freed. They are really freed. And then we get Exodus 14, 31. So the people believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Hallelujah, amen. Strike up the band. Exodus 15 is two praise songs. And then they go to lunch. And just like today, it's over lunch that all the problems start. Who said we were gonna be camping? I didn't say camping. Did you say camping? We didn't have enough food for this. Who, who brought the food? We didn't we even bring a food truck. Who, whose idea was this? Six weeks later, six weeks, six weeks after seeing the greatest miracle any group of people would ever see, not 12 people in an upper room, 650,000 of them, six weeks later, six weeks, Lent, I mean, uh, oh, Baptists, uh, Thanksgiving to New Year's. 
Six weeks later, they're saying, you know, slavery, they killed our children, but we did have leeks and onions. Maybe we should go back. The whole congregation of the Israelites complain against Moses six weeks after the greatest miracle. Moses says, see what the Lord will do. God provides manna for the morning, pillar of clouds during the day, pillar of fire at night. They go on to their journey. They have ups and downs, literally, 10 commandments, golden calf, and they keep going. Until in Numbers chapter 11, we see the people grumble again. This time they grumble, not because they're hungry, but because they're bored with the miracle that God is doing every morning. Manna again? Oh, please. Remember the flesh pots? Oh, don't you wish we had the flesh pots? I'm convinced the flesh pots were bacon. That's why we have those dietary laws. Maybe we should have leeks and onions. Let's go back. And this time, Moses gets mad. He goes to God and says, if you're going to leave me with these people, you can kill me now. Now, I don't know if you ever came back from a really bad Sunday morning and said that to your spouse, but I'll bet you at least once you came home and said, you know, I could sell real estate. I could sell life insurance. Oh, man. Right? There's so, I, could t I could teach kindergarten. I mean, really, there's so many things I could do. Oh, my gosh. This is what I want you thinking about over lunch. Ed Friedman says that when you hit crises, when you hit resistance, when your own people hit loss, you're tempted in one of two ways. You can have what he calls a failure of nerve. A failure of nerve is where the anxiety of the group causes you to stop the transformation, where you find yourself saying stuff like, you know, you know, maybe we made a good point. Maybe, maybe we've been, you know, we've had a little bit of change fatigue. We've tried to go kind of fast. Let's go back. I think Pharaoh knows God's on our side, knows we got some power. Maybe we can get a good deal from Pharaoh. Maybe we can. We can like, not just, you know, not just one day off. Let's invent the weekend. It'll be cool. Like people will like it. We can do that. Failure of nerve is when you stop the transformation process because the anxiety of the group is so high and your need to get their approval is so high that the very transformation that you're called to do stops. Some of us fall into that category a lot. We just do. Failure of heart is what happens to Moses when he gets so mad that he gets disconnected from his people. He gets cynical. He gets angry. He's not just quiet quitting, he's seething while he's quiet quitting. And that cynicism becomes contagious. I teach doctor of ministry students. Everybody comes in with a ministry story. All my students have post-traumatic church disorder. They've all been wounded by the church. They all carry wounds the same way we do. How do we begin to think about the kind of person we're to be? What I'd love you to reflect on is just think about this, the difference between a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. If the most important aspect of leadership is preparing for sabotage, if sabotage is inevitable when you're trying to do something new, bring change, bring renewal to an environment of people. Because people resist loss and they'll experience the loss and you gotta take them through the loss. What happens to you when they resist you? Do you get a failure of nerve or do you get a failure of heart?
And how might God meet us in that moment? Which is where we'll pick up after lunch. Let me pray for this.